0: Well, good morning. That was that was weak. Uh, good morning. I know you're all stunned by that passage. Um, Maybe just relieved that it was over. Um, the The concept of we get a chance to go through these stories. A lot of times, there's a lot of text that goes with it to to cover. But um, before we jump into the passage, I just want to acknowledge that we're into a Memorial Day weekend. And uh, the concept of Memorial Day is a, is a time that we set aside to remember those who literally have laid down their life for us, for our freedoms. And so it's a day that we do want to point towards and recognize Partially because that whole concept of what someone does when they lay their life down for their their friend or their brother, literally Jesus talks about. It's the example of the gospel, this sacrifice that is made. I know that personally for me, this this idea of a day that covers a remembrance for those that, that we've lost it stings a little closer to home. I've had some family members here and there, but I know that my son at one point was a U.S. Army Ranger. He was overseas. He was battling in the the war on terrorism, and he would just go silent. We wouldn't hear from him. And in the process, uh, I would try to read every bit of news I could to find out where he might be and what might be happening. And I would just simply have alerts on Google that would send any notice if there was any story about the army or the Rangers or something that was going on to that effect. And one day I'm checking those alerts and a news story pops up that a paratrooper from Hume had been killed in action. And my body just flushed emotionally. My eyes watered instantly. I was shaking and I, I, I thought, there are no other paratroopers at Hume. There is only my son. And I thought that day, that was how I learned that my son had died. I looked up at the screen and I began to read the story and it said a a paratrooper from Hume, Missouri. And suddenly I had this relief that went over me that it wasn't my son. And I felt so grateful, except it didn't last long as I realized there was another family out there that was getting that news that their son, that their brother, that their father, that their husband would not be coming home. And when we celebrate Memorial Day, oftentimes it's with a barbecue, it's going to the beach, it's doing some fun things. We do those fun things because someone else was willing to sacrifice for us. So today we start this service with a memorial and I'm just simply gonna ask you to bow your heads and we're gonna ask for God's blessing on those that do serve, but primarily those family members that pay that sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this, this very sacrifice is a noble deed, but ultimately it's paid, not just in the life of the one who is passed on, but Lord, the families that are left behind, the parents that lose their children, the spouses that lose their husband or wife, the children that lose their mom or dad, They, Lord, they're left alone without that family member. And Lord, as we go forward in this day, may this value that has, has served us and provided for us freedom be one that we hold dear. And that by it, we might not only remember them, but remember those who are suffering because of that loss. And ultimately, Lord, that it might point towards you. We thank you, Lord, for their sacrifice. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, thank you. Um, we are in Genesis 42, and there's a bit of a story there, and there's a lot of questions in this story, and we don't have time to answer all of them, but some of the questions are, you know, the, the brothers are in prison, and he's going to throw them all in prison, and that he's going to keep um, nine and send one, then he changes his mind, and he's going to send one or uh, uh, keep, keep one and send nine. He keeps Simeon. Why does he keep Simeon? What's up with the drought? How far does it go? There's so many fascinating things about this passage that we could spend time all day just answering the questions that show up. In this story. We don't have time for that. Instead, what we want to do is just simply retell the story very briefly because you might have got confused that if you're like me, when someone else is reading, sometimes it's hard to stay with them that I'll drift off for just a second. And when I come back in, suddenly the story's in another place and something has, has happened. So I've brought in just a couple of props to be able to help you understand this story just a little bit better. And this is a a story of 12 brothers, so I brought in 12 brothers, sorry guys, um, so, uh, Here they are, these 12 brothers, and as you know, there's a famine in the land. We got that part, and this whole thing that Joseph was having the dreams, and he dreamed about the seven years and seven years, so they've had seven years of good, so they collected all the grain, and now we're into the famine. And because we're into the famine, now there's not enough food, and there's people without food, and so it's not just Egypt, it's other lands as well, and Canaan. And so at this point, the people in Canaan have gone without food long enough that they need it. So just to think about this, you're going, Joseph knows this. He knows how it's all going about, but the rest of the world doesn't know that. So Egypt has all this food stored up and now year one of the famine. That means that Jacob and his 12 or his 11 sons, because Joseph is in Egypt, But Jacob and his eleven sons, they're now they've gone a year into the drought because they didn't store anything up. They thought they were going to do their regular crops. They've had a bad year. They're now in trouble. They're getting to the point of starving to death. So at that point, there is they're in trouble. They realize we've got to get grain. So Jacob says to the boys, Go to Egypt and get grain. That's year one. So at that point, this is going to be Joseph. He was always into multicolored coats and things like that. And he's got his Egyptian headdress on. So Joseph has set up all of this, and in come the, the brothers. Now I know that you can't count all these guys because you can't quite see them, but uh one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, there are ten brothers here. And there's Joseph, that's eleven. So the twelfth brother is back home with with uh Jacob. He's he's over here. You can see him right there. <laughs> There's, uh, there's Benjamin, he's safe over there, he's not with us. So at this point, the brothers come in, and it says they bow down before Joseph, which is exactly what the dream was. Remember, he had a dream that the brothers would all bow down? Here they are, all bowing down, there we go, before Joseph. And so this guy's looking straight up. i um, sorry about that. But here's the story. So then they have this conversation. You're spies. We're not spies. Our tune are not. They go back and forth about whether they're spies or not. And so he says, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you in prison. And then all of you are going to be there. And then we're going to take one of you. And we're going to send one of you back to Jacob, your family, to bring that younger brother and come back. So he does that. So he, he takes and throws them all in prison. So that's where we're at in this story, is that at this point, now all the brothers are in prison, and then uh, three days go by, and Joseph says, all right, bring them back out. And so they come back out of prison, and as they're out of prison, he says, listen, here's the deal. Because I fear the Lord, I want you to go back And all nine of you are going to go back and I'm going to put one of you in prison. That's Simeon. The rest of them get to go back and they go back to Jacob and tell that story there. So with that in mind, let's jump into the passage. All right. You got it now, right? That's the whole thing. It really is. So it's like, all right, where are you going with this, buddy? This is a strange little passage, a strange story. The whole story of of Joseph and what happens in Egypt is one of the longest uh, stories in the entire Bible. And there's so much in it. We're, we're glad that we get to just carve out a little bit here. But the first thing that I want to do here is I want to talk about Joseph in particular because something is happening in his life that that starts to play out. You see, he has gotten, because God gave him this dream, or gave the dream to Pharaoh, but he gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dream, he now has been put into second in power over all of Egypt. He has control. So at this point, The control in this scenario is Joseph is in control of Egypt. He literally tells everybody everywhere what they're going to do with their crops. And now they're grateful that he did, but he's in control right up until these brothers show up. When the brothers show up, these are the brothers that had tried to kill him. They stopped from killing him. They throw him in the pit. And now they show up 20 years later. 20 years later, they show up into his life and you have to imagine the emotions that are starting to flow through Joseph when his brothers walk into the room. He's looking at them and he's seeing the men who tried to kill him, the men that betrayed him, the men that sold him into slavery. Every reason why he's away from his family is because of them. All those emotions are pouring up in Joseph's life. So just as he's in control of of Egypt now he's in control of his emotions. And you hear this in the story. In fact, literally it's the scripture comes in and this is in uh, verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated him like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. He was mad. He was He was hurt. He was angry. He spoke roughly to them. That's what scripture says. He was not pleased to see them. Because all of these emotions are coming to bear and we don't fault him. We get it. We understand that. That's a simple thing. We get that. But I have to tell you that there's this concept of what happens next, and this story continues in future chapters, so we'll hear more about how Joseph wrestles with this. But in this particular point, I just simply have to tell you, we have two cats at home, and we have a a door in the garage, a couple doors in the garage, that lizards can actually slide in underneath the door. They come in to get out of the heat or whatever, but they climb underneath the garage door, but our cats can get into the garage. And so our cats go in there and they get these lizards and they're very proud of what they've done. So they bring them into the house to show us their great hunting skills. And as they bring them into the house, they play with them, they bat them around, they let them run a little bit, then they stop them. And eventually a lizard, one of the defense mechanisms is they can actually, if trapped, they can release their tail. Something tries to grab their tail. It just pops off. And a strange thing, your God designed this, I don't know why, but the tail after it's off will still wiggle around. And they, I know you're thinking, did I come to church for this to hear about? Anyway, the cats will knock the tail around because it wiggles more than the lizard does. The lizard will literally freeze and the tail will continue to wiggle. So they go around and they play with the tail. They have a blast with this as they're torturing the lizard. Let me tell you, that is not what's happening here. There is a little bit of treating roughly and a bit of torture going through Joseph's mind. He's angry, he's hurt, he's looking at these guys like, oh, what I wouldn't give, you threw me into a a pit, I'm throwing you into prison. He does that type of stuff. And that part is part of what he's feeling in this moment. He's not toying like, oh, let me just have a one over on my brothers. He's wrestling with a much deeper emotion here. The the fact of the matter that he doesn't kill him outright is amazing. But this is the part that we want to look at because we need to acknowledge how Joseph is feeling in this moment to see what happens in this story. That is, he treats them roughly, he calls them spies, and he says, by this you will be tested. I'll throw you into prison. And what he said was, I'm putting all of you into prison, and then we're going to have nine of you in prison, and I'm going to let one of you go back. Remember, that's his first thing. You're all going to be in prison. So let's just talk for a second about the famine. We are in year one of the famine. They've come to get grain because they're about to starve to death. So they each come with animals so they can carry all the grain. And Joseph knows what about the famine? How many years is the famine going to go? Seven. We've spent one. That means there's six years left. One brother going back with grain means they're, they're, they're not, they don't have enough grain. In fact, later on, we see the story that even when he sends the nine, they go and can take back nine loads of grain and still have to come back a year later. So to send one means that the family in Israel or back in Canaan is going to die as well. That this is not a pleasant thing. By keeping the nine, he's putting death over there for Jacob and Benjamin. There's not enough food going back to Canaan. That's what Jacob is doing as he puts him in prison. He's saying, you're not gonna make it, but I'll tell you what, you guys stay in prison. I'll send one, you bring your brother. It's not enough food. Joseph knows it. And that's the story that we're looking into. In the middle of this story though, is verse 18. If you've got your Bibles, look at verse 18. And it says, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Joseph changes his tune. He stops and says, no, because I fear the Lord, for I fear the Lord, we're going to keep one in prison. All nine of you take grain back to your family. It's a completely different answer in the midst of this. And that answer at this moment means something happened to Joseph in the middle of this situation. That's the concept of of what we're going to focus on this morning is just simply this idea that something happened to Joseph during those three days. And during those three days, the, what was it? It's right there in the verse. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live for, because, for I fear the Lord. The word he uses is Elohim, and Elohim is a Hebrew word, not an Egyptian word. Do you remember that it says that he had to have a translator because the translator's playing on this little charade that it's not his brother, that they, it's not Joseph. So he's doing everything in Egyptian, except at this point, he says, for I fear Elohim. And he sends a message to the brothers. They don't get it. They don't pick up on what he's saying. But Joseph is saying, the God I fear is not all the gods of the Egyptians, and they have many, but the God that he fears is Elohim himself. It's your God that I fear. And the reason why he says that is I believe fully that God appeared to Joseph, that Joseph had a conversation, at least in his heart, the spirit of God spoke to him. And in fact, the previous uh, chapter, you can look at verse or, uh, chapter 41, and you can see we're Pharaoh himself says, this is a man of whom the spirit of his God is upon him. That even Pharaoh recognized the spirit of God was on him. In this moment of hurt, of bitterness, and everything else, God speaks to Joseph and says, whoa, 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 don't do this. Don't do what you're about to do. Instead, do something that's different. In fact, what he does next is generous, it's gracious, it has all the, the earmarks of a God who is generous and loving and gracious. And that's the story, that what he does next is he gives them more. He pours more upon them. He, um, he, he takes, instead of, of keeping nine in prison and sending one, he takes one and sends nine. He gives them more food because there are nine of them. He gives them their money back. And if you look um, forward one chapter to chapter 43, uh, or um, 43, 23... It says, he replied, this is uh, Joseph, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. That Joseph is saying, this isn't me playing a trick. This is me blessing you, being generous to you. I received your money. Well, then who paid? Joseph did. Joseph paid for that grain. That This is the generosity of Joseph being poured out on his brothers. All of this change comes about because of this fear that he has of the Lord. And this fear, by the way, is this idea that um, with him, it is respect. We're going to talk a little bit more about it in a second. But I want to come back to the one more thing on this is that it says on the third day this happened. Throughout scripture, there's different types and symbols of things in scripture. There's light and water. There's, uh, there's multiple types of Jesus and the gospel played out in the Joseph story. And this particular time, when we talk about the third day, Scripture does a lot with the third day. Literally, life appears on the third day. When when creation is happening, it's the third day. You have no life, and then on the third day, God creates life. It starts with that. But even with Abraham, when he's going to sacrifice Isaac, it's a three-day journey, and at the end of the journey, God then intervenes and provides a sacrifice so that, that Isaac would be saved. It's a picture that's pointing towards our own salvation in that. But we know the story of Jonah. How long was Jonah in the whale? Three days. It was that same thing that even the Israelites, when they were coming up against, uh, the Jordan river about to go into the promised land for the very first time, they spent three days on the edge of the river and then the, the river stopped and they were able to cross into the promised land that you have, um, You have Esther and the whole thing where the Jews are about to be killed and she fasts for three days and then deliverance comes. And I could go in through the story of Hezekiah. We have Paul when he was Saul and he was blinded. He was blinded for three days and he had darkness and then the light came and then there's Jesus. And Jesus in the tomb for three days and then he's resurrected out of that darkness. This story comes again and again. And for Joseph, he starts with his anger and the bitterness and the things that his emotions are conflicted about so many different things. But in the three days, God meets with him because he has a fear and a respect of God. He turns to God and he listens to him and it changes him and transforms his actions. He acts differently and actually moves with compassion and love towards his brothers. That's the story that's happening here. The contrast is striking because if what the brothers do. There's a second layer of what happens in this, of what the brothers do in the meantime. And this is verse 28. So first I'm going to read 18, Joseph's view of God. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. And then in verse 28, the brothers have found out the money is in the sacks. He said to his um he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of the sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? They're in terror and they blame it on God. They look at the, the, the bad things that are happening in their life and they think it's God's fault. They look at what's going on and they're like, we're in trouble. God has done this to us. This perspective is fascinating because on one side you have Joseph who stops and is is filled with bitterness and looks at his brothers with hate. And then God grabs him and says, what are you doing? Don't do that. And so he gives his life to God and says, all right, God, I'll do it differently. Not the way I would want to. So remember, he's second in control of Egypt, but then his emotions grab control. And now God grabs control. And God spins Joseph around. But in the process, the brothers, they have this thing happen to him that is actually a wonderful thing. That what has happened, because Joseph is different. This is the provision from God. This is literally the grain you weren't going to have. This is literally the grain for free because here's your money back. This is your family's reconciliation moment. This is all the good that's going to happen to you is in a time of difficult famine, you're going to have a safe place to live. All of that is wrapped up in the moment. And the first thing they do is blame God and say, God did this to us. How fascinating. Just because of our view of who God is. That happens in this story. And in this moment, the fear of God that Joseph has, that means that they have a, he has a respect. There's affection there. So much, mo, so much so that scripture says again and again, so the one who fears the Lord, and meaning this respect and affection for, because I have this admiration of who God is, then I will obey. The one who fears the Lord obeys God and does what he asks. The brothers, on the other hand, are filled with terror from God. They think God is punitive. They think God is out to get them. So because of that, they avoid God. They don't move towards him. They've been in disobedience for a long time. In fact, as you read this story, there's a sense that in it, for 20 years, they have not talked about what happened to Joseph. Because at the point in time that they go, this is all happening because we did this, that you see Reuben for the first time. And this shows up um, in verse 22. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? He says this as it's the first time they've ever talked, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. That they've been living this lie that their brother was dead for 20 years, just not talking about it. For 20 years, they've held God at bay. For 20 years, they've seen God as punitive is coming out to get them because of what they were feeling. I, uh, Kenny Poor used to be one of the executive directors at Hume um, before, before me. And Kenny used to have this line all the time. He says, at this point, people start to feel guilty for some of the things they've done. And when you feel guilty, he says, do you know why it is that you feel guilty? So this is the question. Do you know why it is that you feel guilty? And Kenny would answer every time, because you're guilty. That's it. It's that simple. And this world, even now, there's a whole thing that we've got problems with shaming people. I get that. But you have to understand that what shame is, is an emotion where we feel ashamed because we've done something shameful. That we feel guilty because we're guilty. These brothers have lived with guilt for 20 years, and now they see it as it's their comeuppance. It's all coming down to them. They're going to get payback from God because God's the guy that is a killjoy. He just wants to smash us down, and now it's come to me because of the wrong I've done. God's going to be mean to me. What is this that God has done to us? 20 years. But I want to read to you from Psalms 25. You've got your Bibles turned there. But Psalms 25, um, it's David, David who has a fear of the Lord, David who has an affection for God. In fact, it says of David that he had a a heart for God. And God loved David. So I want you to hear the words that David writes in his perspective of this kind of picture. First and foremost, in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. The difference between turning to a God who is angry, who is punitive, who's coming out to harm me, is I'm going to stay distant and I'm going to avoid. But if I have a view of a God, that God is good and upright, then listen... Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Now, I want you to think about Joseph in this story as well. As I read this, think about how Joseph perceives God. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. That is, he knows more about God, he turns his behavior from being bitterness and hate to being loving kindness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David has guilt, and yet he still turns to God. Even in his guilt, he stops and recognizes, this is a God who forgives me, who has grace and loving kindness. That's beautiful. Not thinking God's out to get me, but that God is for me. Who is the man, verse 12, who fears the Lord? Will he, um, I'm sorry. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him, he will instruct in the way that he should choose, the way he should act. That's the story of Joseph. That concept played out. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Our God is for us. Again and again, this shows up in scripture. He makes known to them his covenant. And finally, in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. That even if we're in a mess and a mire, that God himself will pluck us out of the situation we're in. That's David in his perspective, who also fears the Lord. That's Joseph in this story. It's a beautiful picture of this whole thing. And uh, the concept being that how we see God affects how we live. That how we see him, how we perceive God affects how we live. And then how we live affects how others see God. Do you understand that? That this idea of how we see God affects our behavior and what we do, our level of obedience based on how we perceive God. Is he loving? Is he for me? Or is he angry and punitive? If he loves me and he's for me, I'm going to pursue him and try to be near him and obey him. If I see him as angry and punitive, I'm going to resist him and I'm going to avoid him. And we have that story right here in two different individuals. We have the brothers and we have Joseph and they go this route for the one that turns to God, how he lives. And because of his obedience, that comes down as redemption. And the redemption goes out and covers in blessing the brothers and reconciliation is in process for these boys. This dysfunctional family is about to be brought back because this man obeys and sees God as being for him. What we believe about God, how we see God affects How we live and how we live then affects others around us and how they see God. The brothers in the end are going to turn back to God because of Joseph's obedience in this moment. All right, so what? We're gonna wrap it up with just five quick points. So if you've got your journals out, you got your pens, there's five things that I would tell you. Put a little square box, a to-do list, pick one of them. Maybe pick all of them, but I'm just looking at this passage. I'm gonna give you five things. The first one is, give God your time. Well, I'm sorry, the overall of these, give God your time, five ways to give God your time. That what, what Joseph did in this was he gave God three days. He stopped and he looked at it and he simply said, I'm about to send this email that I shouldn't send. I better let it sit overnight. Anyone, anyone ever write an email that you should have let it sit before you sent? And you learn, and then you stop and say, I'm going to check it again in the morning, and then you read in the morning, and you're like, yeah, I shouldn't send that. That's basically what Joseph did. And his emotions, he didn't let his emotions control himself. He went back, he checks with God, and God says, yeah, don't do that. And he changes it around. So this whole line of reasoning for these five things is give God time. Give him some moments. Give him a moment to be able to maybe change how you're feeling and how you're responding in whatever situation you're in. Number one is attention. Look to him. If you're in this situation to where you're angry and bitter at God, he's got his hand up to God like, no, I don't want to listen to you. We do this all the time. Some of us this morning haven't talked to God in a long time. Some of us, we're just here begrudgingly that we're even in church. We do this where we just put God off and we'll walk along with him because we don't want to be without God, but we're not sure we really want to be intimate with God. And that might be because of pain in our life. It might be because of sin in your, in your life. It's not so much the issue. God doesn't care. He's already paid for that. He's already covered that guilt. He wants you. So with that first one is give your attention. If you've been looking away from God, put your eyes on God and look towards him. As David said, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Number two, minutes. Give him your minutes. This idea is just before we get into days, that's going to be number three. But before we get into days, the idea of minutes is just a few minutes a day. It doesn't have to be long, but time when you would stop and pray and open up your Bible, maybe three minutes, maybe five, maybe 15. But give God your minutes. So first give him your attention, second, give him your minutes. Jesus did this in Mark 1:35, the beginning of his ministry. There were so many people coming to him to be healed, and it stops and says that Jesus, while it was still dark, got up to go and pray in a quiet place. that he needed minutes for what was gonna happen next. Even Christ himself did this. So give him your attention, give him some minutes, just a few minutes. Number three, days. In this case, Joseph gave three days. There's nothing magical about three days. Um, the type is throughout scripture, but there's lots of things that come in threes. Our favorite restaurant, uh, Mexican restaurant, they have a El Cholo, they do uh, um, Trace Tacos El Carbon. And now we're all hungry. But the, the concept tacos come in three. That's another sign of threes in scripture. Um, I'm sorry. That's not in scripture. Three musketeers, the handsome brothers. It just, there's all kinds of things that come in threes. Uh, here's the point. Let me get back to it. Um, God is for you. Move towards him. Your attention, your minutes. If you have a significant thing going on in your life, set aside three days to pray. Maybe fast, but, but give chunks of time to issues that are even bigger. Joseph did just that. Timeline. Give him your timeline. This one is the idea that in your life and what's happening, you have a goal. You have an idea of how things should go. But God sometimes has a different plan. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. This is what I'm going to do with my life and pretty soon I'm over here. And how did I get here? Give God your timeline. Let God do it in his timing. We're in the middle of a famine in this story that God chose to put on the earth. That's God's timeline. Let him have the timeline. He already has it anyway, by the way. So just it's an internal thing where we release it and say, God, I recognize you have my timeline. Attention, minutes, your days, your timeline, and the last one is your life. Give God your life. This idea of Memorial Day that you'd lay down your life for someone else Shows up in Philippians, that idea that um, think of others is more important than yourselves. than what Jesus did when he laid down his life for us. This story and the principles we're talking about is what Jesus did for us. This is the gospel lived out because Joseph changes and sacrifices and gives. And he gives to these brothers. Reconciliation comes into this family. And that's the story. Again and again, it comes on. I want to finish with a story that um, illustrates this idea of what happens if we recognize that God is for us. We move towards him and it begins to change how we live and how we live then changes other people's perspectives of God. The concept for me is I'm a, I'm a young father. We have, I think, three kids. I, I don't know the exact day, year this happened, but we barely had enough money for anything. We, we were at that point where you're trying to figure out if you've got enough food to, to feed your kids and you're feeling like, man, am, am I a failure in life? We have this old, broken down used car. And uh, at one point in time, We had taken the the kids down. We had gone grocery shopping and bought just enough groceries, we thought, with the last bit of money that we had. And uh, we were turning the corner, and we're in Fresno, California. And uh, hot day, we turned the corner, and a hydraulic hose for power steering inside the car breaks somehow and starts pouring hydraulic fluid all over the hot engine, and it catches fire. It literally is. I'm in this car with kids strapped in car seats. I see flames coming out from underneath the hood of our car, and I've got my family in the car. And I tell you, Jeannie, you may need to get the kids out. I pop the hood. I run around, and I won't go into the details. But the bottom line is, I huffed and I puffed and I blew the fire out. <laughs> I have no idea how that how that happened, but the fire went out. But now my car his, there's wires melted. There's things. This is a mess. And I'm like, God, this is crazy. I can't do anything. I don't know what to do. I looked at my feet that were caught in the net. And I looked to the Lord and said, Lord, I need help. Gentleman at a gas station just across the street, he comes over. He saw the commotion. And uh, he says, I think I can fix this. And I said, I have no money. And he says, I think I can fix this. And he takes the car over into the, the garage. He fixes and repairs everything and hands me the keys and I'm like, how do I repay you? And he says, it's the pay it forward thing. He says, next time you see somebody in need and you're able, do something. Give of yourself next time you see someone in need. That's all I ask for payment. We drove up the hill to, to Hume. We lived our life. But imagine how I feel every time I see somebody in need. So just a few months ago, Eugenie and I are in Death Valley, and we're driving on a side road, not the main highway, and a little side road way out in the middle. The sun has gone down. It's the end of the day. There's not as many people driving around. And way out there is this car. And as we get closer to the car, we realize they've had a flat tire. And uh, it's an older couple, and they're they're on the phone. And I roll down the window because I feel obligated because this guy that fixed my car years ago... (laughs) And I pull it over, and he cannot break the lugs off of the tire. He's not strong enough. And so Eugenie did it. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry. There's <laughs> a serious story, and I just got to be sorry. Um, but we did it. And it, the, the point is this. Is the grace God has poured on you should tangibly change you so how you live becomes grace poured on other people. God is for you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. It should change how you live and how you live will change how others see God. That's the story of Genesis 42. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this beautiful story of the gospel woven into some obscure story of the Old Testament. We thank you for a man like Joseph who was faithful to obey We thank you for the reconciliation you do in this family, though it's still to come. We see pictures of it happening even here. Lord, we're so grateful that you are a good and righteous and loving God. Thank you for being for us, even in our times of stress and difficulty. Lord, may you find us giving you the time that we need to be transformed. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.